All right, we're going to continue on reading through the catechisms. We'll do question 26, and then, uh, then I will pray. So question 26, I'll read the question, and then together we will recite the answer. Wait, is it 26 or 25? Yeah, 26, that, I think there's a typo up there. All right, so question 26, what else does Christ's death redeem? Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise as the only Redeemer. The only Redeemer, as the Catechism says, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we we praise you as the Redeemer that takes away our sins, that gives us new hearts, uh, and, and ultimately, God, you redeem our physical bodies. We praise you as the Redeemer of creation. God, we know that uh, your lordship and reign isn't just over, uh, over human beings and individuals. It's over everything that's created, Lord. And, and we just praise you as the Redeemer of it all. Lord, you're the Redeemer and hope of Starkville, Mississippi. And uh, we ask that you would help us be light in this community. Uh, help us, Lord, consider our brothers and sisters and neighbors more important than ourselves. Lord, and help us today as a body focus and receive the message that your spirit may have for us. Satan wants us to be distracted and defeated. Satan wants us feeling bad for ourselves and thinking only inward. Lord, help us focus and open the eyes of our hearts and minds and let us be encouraged today by the teaching of your powerful word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our passage this morning will come from Obadiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Obadiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you, would, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise man out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah, in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and, con and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. All right. Thank you, Michael. All right. So that's the book of Obadiah. Read the whole thing. It's one of the uh, shorter books in the Bible. Do what? Oh, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. Three to five-year-olds, uh, you guys are going with the Johnsons. So there we go. Man, thanks for the reminder. But I, it's tough because, you know, the three to five-year-olds really want to hear about Obadiah. They just... <laughs> They got the intro, and then they're wanting to hear it unpacked. It's tough being a three- to five-year-old. All right. Yeah, so uh, Obadiah is probably a little bit of the dark side of the moon. Um, uh, most folks might not have, have uh, read through it or studied it. So uh, try to understand this book and what it means for us. Uh, imagine two brothers, two adults, and, and they move to the same town. Uh, they aren't very close. They're, they're like a lot of brothers. They grow up not getting along very well. Uh, but they're brothers still. One night, they are, uh, or one brother is just walking around, and he sees this guy walking out of a store, and he gets jumped by a group of folks. And they beat him up, and they appear to be, you know, stealing their stuff and all that. And, and as he's watching this, this, this person get jumped, he realizes that it's his brother. And, and, and almost instinctively, he decides to do nothing to just wait and watch and see what happens. So, so eventually they, they rough this guy up and, and it's over and the, the group of guys walk away. 
And so he walks over to the situation to inspect what's going on. And he realizes that the guys took his wallet. And so he searches his pocket and finds that there's some cash and some change. So he takes that. And then he sees that his keys are in his other pocket. And he knows, and he sees his car is parked down the way. So he gets his keys, and this, the, the brother's unconscious at this, at this point. He gets his keys, and he goes to his brother's car, and he knows he kind of keeps some emergency cash in there. Turns out he found about 100 bucks. So he takes that, and then as he's walking back, he has to pass his brother as he's leaving. Uh, he takes, he has his chain, he takes that chain, he takes his watch and his wedding ring, thinking, I can probably score some money off this at a, at a pawn shop. Now, this would be terrible for any person to do. The idea that it's his brother makes it shockingly bad, right? Well, that's the story that Obadiah is talking about. So the, the situation, to understand what's going on in Obadiah, you need to understand the context. So I'm going to back up a little bit to Abraham, the, the patriarch of Israel. Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name would later become Israel, from where we have the, the people of Israel. And from Esau, Jacob's twin brother, we would have the people of Edom. And so Israel and Edom were uh, brother nations, in a sense. And what happened was uh, God was putting his people, Israel, under, uh, and actually in particular, Jeru uh, Judah and Jerusalem, they, they were under judgment. And God had sent Babylon in to conquer them and to bring their people into exile as part of their, their punishment. And what happened was Esau, rather than defending his brother at the time, even though they were under God's judgment, but rather than defending him at the time, took advantage of them. As we read in the text, they stood aloof. Uh, and then they went in and plundered them as well. And so Obadiah has words for Edom. There's going to be consequences for what Edom has done. So today, as we, as we think about uh, the, the book of Obadiah, I want to consider it from two angles. Uh, first, I want to consider Obadiah and Edom. And then secondly, I want to consider Obadiah and us. So first, Obadiah and Edom. Now, there's, there's two things that emerge when we consider Obadiah and Edom that I want to consider. One is the pride of Edom, and the other is God's vengeance. So first, let's consider the pride of Edom. In verse 2, we read this, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. So this is the Lord speaking to Edom. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who lived in the cleft of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So notice in verse, uh, verse 3, we read, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. That's a line we should allow to haunt us a bit. Pride is deceptive. We can be deceived by our pride. If someone is prideful, they likely don't know it. And, and pride has a way of making people believe what isn't true. It can make somebody think they're safer than they really are. And that's what's going on with Edom. They think they are safer 
than they really are. And um, they, they were situated in a place that made them strong. They were in the, the mountain in verse 3. We see that they lived in the cleft of the rock in a lofty dwelling. They soared like an eagle and made their nest among the stars. So that means that they were, they were, they were located on a mountain. We read in the text, Mount Esau is where they, they lived. And so they were in a high place and in a secure place. At least that's what they thought. And while they were secure, their brother Jacob was being plundered. And rather than help out their brother who was being plundered, who was under attack, they went down and they, st- they stood aloof. And then when they were done standing aloof, they went and, and plundered. They went and took whatever the Babylonians didn't get. In verse 5, it said, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? I don't know if you guys have ever been broken into. When I was in junior high, I remember my mom and I came, came home in the middle of the day, and I remember seeing that the TV was missing. And I thought, that's odd. And my mom ran back to another room <laughs> because she knew where other things were gonna, might be missing. And here's what happened. The people that broke into our home when I was in junior high did not take everything. They weren't taking the couches. They, weren't, they, they, they took a few items. And what he's saying is that what thieves usually do, they just steal a bit. And he's saying what the Edomites did, they came and cleaned them out. And this next line, it says, if grape, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? The, the way it was supposed to work in Israel, uh, part of a, a ministry, a service to those who were poor or traveling, was when, let's say, if you had a, a, a great uh, field of great vineyards or whatever, then you were supposed to leave the outside unplugged. You were supposed to leave that there for people who were poor or people who were traveling. They could come and they could take that. And what he's saying, they didn't even leave anything for the gleaning. And so Edom stripped them bare. I mean, they were taking whatever they could. They weren't leaving much meat on the bone. So Jerusalem is down and Edom is taking full advantage of them. And it would be like if a store was broken into a, a riot and an owner is trying to stop people from breaking in to steal all, all of their stuff. And then a family member walks by and rather than helping his, his brother, cousin, or whoever, he watches him take a beating and then takes advantage of being able to steal stuff from his store. And so this is what Edom is doing. And it's a move that operates out of the deceitfulness of pride. They believe, Edom believes that Jerusalem is weak and cannot defend themselves. And are they right? Can Jerusalem defend themselves? They cannot, they, they are right. They are weak. They cannot defend themselves. Here's the problem. They forgot that Jacob has a defender, right? They, in the pride of their heart, they began to imagine a world where there was no God. And that's how pride operate. The, the deceitfulness of pride leads people to imagine a world without God. At the end of verse 3, Edom says, Who will bring me down to the ground? And in verse 4, we see the Lord answer, I will bring you down. God will take vengeance on Edom for what they've done to his people. In verse 15 and 16, we see this. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now, the, the day of the Lord, hope, hopefully that's entering your vocabulary. I think we're going to mention it maybe every book of these minor prophets we're going to. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. But it says this. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds, speaking to Edom here, your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, 
So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. So what's going on right now in the scene? You have Edom, who is in a high and lofty place in the mountains. They are secure and safe and good. And, and the people of Israel or the people in, in, uh, of Judah and Jerusalem, they are being just completely taken out, right? They have Babylon's coming in. They've exiled them. They've plundered their property. And one of these nations is going to make it, and one's not. God's people are going to make it. Edom will not. And it says to Edom, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have drunk on the holy mountain, so the nations will drink from you. It will be as if you never were. The Lord will avenge his people. And Obadiah knew this probably because he knew what Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 says. And it says this, vengeance is mine. This is the Lord. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Obadiah knew that vengeance belongs to the Lord. In his time, in his way, he's going to take out the Edomites. Now, all of this might seem a bit irrelevant to us. What does Obadiah and Edom have to do with us here in Starkville in 2021? Well, how about this? If we have a brother nation, which we don't, let's not plunder them if they get conquered. <laughs> Okay, Okay. we'll work on that, right? Well, I don't think that is our application. And as we study the Old Testament, we need to kind of filter it through new covenant eyes. We're operating under the old covenant with the people of Israel in a land with certain specific promises for their situation. And we are in the new covenant that's different from the old. We are under Christ, not under the Mosaic law. And so the, the application does shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But I think there are some timeless themes that are worth considering that we're seeing here in Obadiah. So let's consider for a moment Obadiah and us. And the, and the two issues that I want to carry over, the two issues we talked about with Obadiah and Edom, because I think they carry over to us, and the two issues are pride and God's vengeance. These two issues are still on the table for us to consider today. So Edom, like I said, was situated on a mountain which made them strong. In verse 3, we read about them being in the clefts of the rock, their lofty dwelling, it's asked, who can bring them down? And the Lord answers that question. He says, I will bring you down. Edom believed themselves to be in good shape. They were in a strong position. And that is what deceived their hearts towards pride. Edom was in a really good spot. They were up high in the mountain. They were in good shape. And that led to their destruction because it led to the pride of their heart which deceived them into believing a false security and to imagining a world where there was no God. Their strong position deceived their hearts into becoming prideful and God opposes the proud and he will take vengeance on those who hurt his people. That means the best thing that Edom, had, the best thing that Edom thought they had going for them was actually the worst thing they had going for them. Pride deceived their hearts. It gave them an illusion of strength. And here's the illusion that pride performs on us. It makes us imagine a world without Yahweh. It makes us see ourselves as the center of the universe and gives us just enough success to see ourselves as independent creatures 
rather than hopelessly dependent creatures. So is it possible that our greatest strengths and successes can actually be bad for us? King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king over Babylon when they were conquering really the the world at the time, and in particular, Jerusalem. Uh, he was probably the most powerful man of the world at that time, and uh, he not only conquered kingdom, he, he was a part of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He, he was uh, responsible for the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, so he's a very accomplished man. And in Daniel 4, I want to read a few verses. You can turn from there if you want. It's be, you'd be turning left uh, in, in your Bible. But in Daniel 4, we get a little commentary about what was going on with King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you know history, if you know the story, man, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a dude. <laughs> he's getting things Done. And so here's what we read about them in Daniel chapter 4, verse 29 to 33. Daniel 4, 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven up from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He went mad. And this madness was going to fall on Nebuchadnezzar until he realized something. Until he realized it was the most high who gave the kingdom of men and, is, and he gives it to whomever he will. This king who accomplished so much, it, it wasn't going to take a bad day for him to get reoriented. His whole world was going to have to collapse. For the, the, the deception of pride that landed in King Nebuchadnezzar with all that success, it needed to be pretty intense. And who can bring down the great king Nebuchadnezzar? Yahweh. And so look, I'm not sure what your strength might be. I'm not sure what your successes have been, even what your spiritual gifts might be, what, 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 you, what you bring to the church. But whatever it is, it makes you vulnerable to pride. And pride has serious consequences. In James 4, 6, we read this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you become proud, you are setting yourself up to be opposed by God. And we need to understand that well. Because often, if you're like me, you might daydream about things happening that would probably make you prideful, maybe even unbearably so. And when we become prideful, we forget God. Because pride is deceitful. It creates an illusion of a world where God doesn't exist, at least not practically. And this happens without us realizing it because pride is deceptive. You know, 
when we get angry, usually we can tell. Unless you're passive aggressive like me, it takes me a little bit more work because I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be a good guy, right? But usually when we get angry, we know it pops up real quick. Envy, a little bit more tricky, but we can tell where we're starting to feel uncomfortable around someone or hearing about a name here or there. But pride, pride's a tough one because pride comes to us in, think, in, in the form of what might be like an answered prayer a promotion, a raise, some respect, or, or whatever it might be, and it just deceives our hearts. So beware that the best thing going for you right now could be closer to the worst thing going for you. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying as fallen creatures, we don't handle outrageous success well. We don't even handle a little bit of success well, right? And the reason... The reason it's a problem, the reason that pride is a problem is because it makes us imagine a world where there is no God. Now, the, the second thing I want to cover after pride um, that I think carries over from Obadiah's world to our world is the idea of God's vengeance. In, in verse 15, I'll, I'll read this again. For the day of the Lord is near upon the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on the holy mountain... So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So the day of the Lord is near, God's judgment. And as Edom has done to Jerusalem, so it will be done to them. Their deeds will return on their own head. And so we need to know that our God takes vengeance. Our God takes vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. It does not belong to us. For, for a Christian, this thought never needs to be in our mind. And if it's there, we need to repent from it. Here's a thought that must never be in our minds. And if it is, we need to repent. I'm going to get them back for that. Or how can I get them back for that? That is unchristian. Vengeance does not belong to us. It belongs to the Lord to think, to consider how I'm going to get them back for that. Whether you're aggressive, aggressive or passive, aggressive, that's not on the board for Christians. Paul makes this clear in Romans 12, 19 to 21. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. I wish you would have qualified that, you know, try not to avenge yourself unless you can help it. <laughs> beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will, reap, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This means that when we are mistreated, we are to respond with kindness. Getting people back for what they've done to you is not an option. If your spouse mistreats you, you're not allowed to get them back. You are allowed, I should say, to confront a rebuke, get friends involved, elders involved. And it's interesting, this part in Romans 12 about never like uh, take vengeance for yourselves, the next, the next chapter is talking about the authorities. And so there are authorities in place that are supposed to practice those, those like the, the governments and rulings authorities and things like that, where the Lord does operate through 
means. It's not just this mystical lightning bolt's going to strike somebody, but there's ways the Lord has set. And part of that means that there should be confronting, rebuking. We should never hide sin. Sin should be named uh, and, and called out. But the question of how we are going to get somebody back for what they've done is not on the board for us. If you're punishing someone actively or passively, then you should repent. And it isn't because they aren't that bad and don't deserve it. So I'm not saying they don't deserve it. I'm saying we don't deserve to get them back. It isn't our place. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to us. Now, knowing this should help us entrust ourselves to God who does take vengeance. This, this should help us to pray more when we refuse to take vengeance and entrust our mistreatment to the Lord. Because if I'm not getting folks back, then I, I need to pray, right? I need to entrust myself to my God. And again, to be clear, sin should be named, confronted, and rebuked. Sometimes you should get other people involved. That's not taking vengeance. That's, that's, not the thing. that's actually a form of love. Now, another thing we should be concerned about is when we're the bad guy. So we're, we're imagining this case of getting someone back for what they did. What about when we're the one that started it, right? What about when we're the bad guy? Which all of us will at some point play that part. We are sinners, even though we're being redeemed and conformed to the image of Christ. We have remaining sin that makes us do stupid, mean, inconsiderate things. So we should be nervous about what goes around, comes around. Remember what we read in verse 15. As you have done, it will be done to you. Now, when God, uh, I should be clear, God does not take vengeance on those who are in Christ. That's really good news. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it's not because we don't deserve it. Y'all know this. We did deserve God's vengeance. It's just that it got spent on a different person. It got spent on the cross. And so the vengeance of God for our sin was paid in full. And so whenever things are going bad or going south, we don't need to have the category of God is getting me back or this is vengeance. But there is something for us to consider about how the Lord works and how he operates with his children. He does discipline his children. Romans or Hebrews chapter 12 is clear about this. And here's what we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't become so gospel-centered that we no longer believe that God disciplines his children. He most certainly does, and it's not pleasant. I mentioned last week that there's, there's different motives in, in regards to following Jesus and, and obeying his commands, and some are better than others. You know, the highest is just loving God, loving people. Those are on good days, right? It's just a shame most days aren't our best days. But there's other motives that God gives us. I mentioned last week rewards. I think another motive that God gives us is, is even to avoid his discipline. I think avoiding God's, I think the idea of avoiding God's discipline is a legitimate motive to treat your family well. Hear me say, it's not the highest motive. It might be one of the lowest. But God reveals these things to us to let us know. To, to do good work at your job when your supervisor isn't, isn't, isn't there to, to see you and to show people kindness, even when you're driving, to, to avoid God's discipline, 
That, that is not wrong. That, that, that is something that we should know and we should operate under. God gives us a whole host of motives for good days and bad days. When we're at our best, we're operating on the highest motives of love for God. At our worst, there's, there might be other motives that move us. But God does discipline his children. Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. And that I pray for us as husbands and fathers that, never, that we would never become too important in our own eyes and begin to treat our wives and children poorly and that God wouldn't discipline. I, I pray that he would discipline us when we get a little bit too high in our own eyes. And look, it's not because I'm a glutton for punishment. So in some ways, I kind of flinch to say that because I really don't want to get disciplined by the Lord. But in another sense... I really think that, that I, along with my family, will be more happy the more I'm like Christ, the more we're all like Christ. And the same with my children and your children. Like We discipline not because we think it's fun to discipline them. It's, it's because we actually think they'll be happier if they get out of these systems, the way they're treating others or, or the way they're operating. And so I genuinely think it's for our good and for our joy. And so we also just need to know that while the gospel is better than we realize and grace is more amazing than we realize, we will still reap what we sow. In Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So do not be deceived by the pride of your heart. The world that you might imagine without God is not real. That world doesn't exist. And it's pride, the deception, deception, deception of pride in your heart that will make you believe it. You will reap what you sow, and as you do to others, it will be done to you. Edom became strong enough to imagine a world without God, and it ultimately led to their destruction. So may God help us to never have it so good that we can begin to imagine the world without Him. And may we always... In, in every high and in every low, entrust ourselves fully to our maker, our defender, our redeemer, and our friend. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words that you spoke through Obadiah and that you preserved for us. Here we are thousands of years later considering what was happening during this time with these two nations that are foreign to us. And yet there is a word for us now here in 2021 in Starville, Mississippi. Pride remains, sin remains, and we are grateful that the, to the, the idea of fearing your vengeance being unleashed on us is removed by the cross. So help us to see that, help us to stay humble, and help us never to even come close to imagining a world where you aren't the center. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.